Father, we thank you for the encouraging sign this morning of graduation. For it reminds us that there is progress in the life, even in the midst of difficulty and challenge. That there is a payday. There is a harvest. And when we battle in this life through the challenges and the temptations and trials that face us, sometimes we wonder, will there, any be, will there be any day in which we are rewarded? Will there be any day in which the pain is gone and the sun will shine? Well, Lord, help us to realize that that is your plan. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So in the midst of the difficult night that we face, I pray, Father, that you will give us the look up to the one who sits on the throne, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and the Son of God, who is King of the universe. In whose name we pray, amen. Years ago, I came under the influence of an old evangelist from Alabama by the name of Fred Brown. If you've been around South Baptist Church for a long time, and I mean a long time, back in the 1970s, he was a frequent speaker that Dr. Sugden would bring in to uh, do evangelistic campaigns. Among the several stories and wonderful truth that I recall from his preaching, there is one that was a bit comical. So Fred Brown was a big guy even in his teen years and his mother apparently was not even five foot. Again, they lived in Alabama and dad was out working and so when Fred would get in trouble as a young boy, it was up to his mom to discipline him. The pattern of discipline in the Brown home in those days was to take a switch, which is a branch off of a tree, and then use that to spank the child. So Fred did something wrong, and his little mom looked up to him and said, go out to the shed, go out to the shed. And so he went out there, and she got that branch from the tree and she began to swing it. Now, although she was small, she had a pretty good swing. And the branch stung a little. But Fred noticed that if he would back up into her, actually he, he would slowly back up into her as she was switching and until her back was against the wall of the shed. And he would back up closer and closer until finally she was swinging the switch like this. And when she did that, he said, you know, it was interesting. The closer I got to mom, the less I felt the switch. The spiritual illustration is pretty clear. The closer we get to God, the less we feel the rod. And yet that is not always so. For the book of Hebrews says something amazing to us about discipline. And so I want to invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Remember that dark clouds were forming over that early church. 
And there was in the hearts of many great fear that a storm was coming. They had gone through persecution. Think of what they had left. By leaving Judaism and believing in Christ, many of them had lost their jobs and others had lost family, kicked out of their family. Domestic stress with a spouse. They were unwelcome in the synagogue and some of these used to be priests. This is amazing to me how many priests came to the faith. You read about it in the early Acts, early chapter of Acts and also in Corinth where these leaders of the synagogue embraced Christ. And some were persecuted both from their Jewish community and the Roman community as they were persecuting people indiscriminately. And there was coming historically, and perhaps those are the dark clouds that were evident at this particular time, the horrible persecution that we now know came from the Roman Emperor Claudius. So he says to them in verse three, and this is a call for faithfulness in the midst of adverse circumstances, consider him, Jesus, who endured such contradiction or opposition of sinners against himself so that you don't grow weary and faint in your mind. Hebrews 12, 3. He then says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So he holds up Jesus in verse 3, consider him as an example of one who felt the opposition of sinners against himself. Lest you grow weary and faint, that's what they were tempted to do, to give up and quit. But then, as though they had been maybe a little bit melodramatic, a little bit overreactionary, he says, you know, you guys have not yet strived to the point of shedding blood like Jesus did. Sometimes we have the ability to overemphasize the problems we have. And we magnify them and make them so large that we think we can never overcome them. And that makes us faint, give up, and quit. But he says, your struggle against sin, probably the sin around them, the sin that made people persecute them and reject them, your struggle against sin has not yet made you martyrs. You might have some bruises and wounds, but you haven't shed blood. You haven't lost your life, euphemism for martyrdom. No, they haven't lost their lives, but they have forgotten the word. Because when you get to verse five, the writer of Hebrews says, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as fathers? Or addresses you as a father would address his son? You know, it's, it's one thing to overemphasize something, it's another thing to underemphasize. And we have that ability to overemphasize our problems and underemphasize the Lord's help. We overestimate our difficulties while undervaluing the power of God's word. And we forget it. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 11, they were dull of hearing? 
And he told them in chapter two, verse one, pay more careful attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away. So we hear the word, but it doesn't take lodging in our heart. We don't meditate on it, think on it, apply it, and we forget the word. And then we are, we are victims to any kind of temptation that will come our way and take over. Woe is me, we will say. How come this only happens to me? No one else has the problems that I do. And I don't mean to say that you don't have problems. I mean to say that we often overemphasize them and we forget the word. So he says, let me give you a word of encouragement. And notice this in verse five. It has to do with the father addressing you as sons. So we're talking about a unique relationship. Our ability to handle difficulty and discipline in this broken world depends upon a unique relationship that we have with God, Father, Son. And uh, women don't despair. The, the Greek word is clearly son only because he was the one who was heir to the throne. But God's children, men and women, all believers, need to have a unique relationship with him as father to children as we go through the difficulties of life. So verse five and six of Hebrews is a quotation from the portion of scripture that Hammer read a moment ago, Proverbs chapter three, verse 11 and 12. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as a son. And the writer of Hebrews, in the form of a good Jewish midrash, and a preacher taking a text from the Old Testament, begins to expound on its truth and elaborate on its application. His text is Proverbs 3. In other words, any perspective on this idea of dealing with discipline that somehow can see it in a positive light must have sound theology at its base. And that sound theology starts with this unique relationship. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we become the children of God. The Bible mentions a few times that everyone is a child of God, God is our Father, in the sense of creation. But in the sense of redemption, there is a special relationship and we only become the children of God when we turn from our sin and trust him. But to as many as received him, John said in chapter one, to those individuals, he gave the authority to be called children of God. Why? Because they believed in his name. So we enter into this unique relationship with God when we become his sons, and that unique relationship is the foundation for any theology that can call adversity good and sees profit in it. To endure consistently, we must see God constantly behind all the affairs of our life. Did you notice in verse five, the first word is son? 
or near the beginning, and the last word of verse six is son. Adult sons, the ones who will inherit, not infant children. By the way, when you read through the English translation and I'm reading through the NIV, you've got the word discipline repeated what? 10, 11 times? And the Greek backs it up with the word paideia, where we get the word pedagogue or pedagogy. It's the idea of the training or the discipline required in education. Now, it was unheard of in the old world to have any type of profitable education without some discipline. It was unheard of in the old world for a father to love a son and not discipline him. And if you really hate your children, then remove reproof and let them go and make their own decisions and that will be a disaster. So the idea of pedagogy, God is training us and teaching us in the school of trials. And that's how he is going to grow us and make us like himself. Notice verse six says, the Lord disciplines the one, the ones he loves. And this is a relationship of a father to a son. So when you talk about discipline, you need to talk about the love of God. The love of God, how great and pure, how measureless and strong. We sing about the love of God and redemption, and well, we should. We sing about the love of God loving sinners. But how often do we sing about the love of God in the midst of our trials? No, that's the time when we doubt his love. But that's the time we need to remember the great words of Proverbs. God deals with us as a father, loving father, does his true children. And by the way, God's love and discipline is never motivated by wrath. The rod of God that chastens the sinner is not the same discipline of God that corrects the saint. There is no wrath in here. There is love in here. And that's what we need to see. By the way, Jesus, although he was a son, learned obedience by what he suffered. That's a mysterious verse. How did Jesus learn, the perfect Jesus learn? In some sense, as a human being, there was development through the suffering, and he proved his obedience to the world. This idea of discipline repeated over needs to be divided in at least two categories. Category number one is the discipline of punishment. And that is where God is correcting us. Now that might have been true for the Hebrews in some cases where sin is evident. One of the best illustrations of this has to be King David, right? King David, the man after God's own heart, 
committed some incredible sins, adultery, lying, murder. And his sin set in motion a series of calamities where a son dies, a husband loses his wife and dies, and the whole nation turns its eyes off Jehovah God. When you're in a position of leadership and you sin, great is the fall thereof. No one is an island to sin only to themselves, but those in positions of leadership carry many with them. And that's what King David did. So God brought punishment. He loved David. It wasn't God's wrath, but it was God's correction. And you look at the consequences that David had to face. In 1 Corinthians, the church at Corinth would take the Lord's Supper without examining themselves, and they abused the Lord's Supper. They had a love feast, but the rich would eat the food they brought before the poor, who couldn't bring much of anything, had a chance to eat. And that's where God said, you gather together not for good, but for evil. It'd be better if you didn't gather and have the Lord's Supper, if you're going to gather like this. For this cause, Paul said, many are weak and sickly among you, and some even, what's the word? Sleep. Died. Not that they died in and went to a crisis eternity of eternal punishment, but God took them home prematurely. Weak and sick, not everyone who is weak and sick has sinned, but the weakness and sickness of some and even the premature death of others can be pointed to God's corrective discipline. Not in wrath, he does it out of love. The psalmist said, before I was afflicted I went astray but now, I love your word. The affliction draws us back to the word. Psalm 119. Another verse in Psalm 119, it is good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. And so sometimes God is correcting us because of our sin, but remember that sometimes God is developing us He's developing us because he wants us to be more Christ-like. So there's the discipline of punishment and there is the dis discipline of development. On the one hand, God is correcting us. On the other hand, God is growing us. And I'm not sure, again, which one he is doing in the book of Hebrews. Most likely he's doing both. The point is you may not sin and life will still be hard you may not sin, but the Father is still going to discipline you. Not in the sense of punishment, but in the sense of challenge to grow. So the Father says to his son, I want you to go clean out the garage. Dad, I don't want to. I want to play ball. Actually, no one says that anymore. I want to play with a computer. Sorry, you're going to go clean the garage. But I haven't done anything wrong. I know. Why don't you go clean the garage? Dad, that's going to take all day, probably longer. The sooner you get going, the sooner you'll be done. I hate you, <laughs> says a son, right? 
And dad says, okay, go clean the garage. What's he doing? He's trying to give a work ethic to his son that really needs one. And someday later, if that son ever matures, he'll look back at the garage and say, thank you for the garage. I didn't want to do it, but I learned something that day. It's not all about me. And that's what God wants to to do for us. He wants, in our discipline, to take our eyes off of things and eyes off of self and look away to the Lord. And so you have Paul with his thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians. What did Paul do wrong? Nothing. But he had a revelation that could have led him into pride, and God said, Paul, I, I want to teach you something. I'm going to give you this thorn. Some Bible scholars believe it was an illness. Others believe it was a person who was just annoying, who was constantly with Paul. Indeed, that could be a thorn in anyone's flesh. I prayed three times, Lord, take it away. No. Lord, take it away. No. Lord, please take it away. No. And then Paul learned, wait a minute, this is good for me. For in my weakness, I become strong, right? We see the the strength of God and the resource of our Heavenly Father pour into our lives in a way that we have never would have experienced it before. That's the discipline of development. Think of Job's trauma. He didn't sin. He was the righteous person around. And yet God allowed to come on him this horrific physical condition. And he cried out to God, take it away, take it away, take it away. And God never did. In fact, God seemed to be silent. But in the end, Job 42, verse 5, my ears have heard of you before, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What have we been talking about in the book of Hebrews? That we are to fix our eyes on him. We are to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, right? And verse three, consider him. Look to Jesus. And it was the very first verse of chapter three. Consider him. Look to Jesus. And the beatific vision that we get of seeing Christ in all his glory. God wants us to capture that. And what does Job say? My ears heard of you before, but now I see you. Do you want to go from hearing to seeing? Sounds like a trick question. Yes, I do. The Lord says, okay. Buckle up. I don't like that plan. He doesn't care. Clean the garage. This is my plan for you. Ken Hughes said, discipline is the divinely ordained path to deepening our relationship with God. Discipline is the divine path for deepening our relationship with God. And it's never out of wrath It's always out of love. So verse five said, my son, don't make light of his discipline and don't lose heart when he rebukes you. 
Those are the two responses we often have. We often respond in such a way that uh, we make light of it. We dismiss it. We ignore it. Oh, it's nothing. We don't think about its implications. We just wish it was gone, the trial. Or on the other hand, it overwhelms us. And sometimes we become melodramatic. As Paul said, or as Elijah said, I'm the only one that's left. Lord, I've been true to you. Can't you see it? I can see the tears flowing. No one else is left. God said, oh, that's interesting. I have 700 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. We get overwhelmed. What does it say in the early verses, verse three? Consider him lest you grow weary and lose heart. The adversity that they were experiencing around them was the mark of the Father's love. I'm not preaching this because I like it. Frankly, I wish this chapter was different. But it's true. And the perspective you have, that unique relationship that you have with the Father, he's your Father, you're his Son, opens up the door for this type of training. So you have the punishment on the one, or correction on the one hand, punishment, and then the development uh, discipline on the other hand, and God does that for our growth. Suffering is not a contradiction of his love. God is not gone when we are going through the ringer. Verse seven, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as, as his children. Kind of a conclusion here. For what children are not disciplined by their father? And if you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate. You're not true sons, or you're not true daughters. So every true child of God is going to go through this. In fact, if there is no challenge in your life because you are following Christ, no adversity, no opposition, the question ought to be on your soul, am I a child of God? Because he disciplines everyone. Proverbs chapter 13 has an interesting verse. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. And some have taken that verse in a really wild way. Remember, God never disciplines us in his wrath. In, in his wrath. And the rod could be a switch, or the rod could be the emblem of how God guides his sheep, because that's what the rod was used, to fight off enemies, but to guide his own. In the book of the Revelation, Jesus said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Now the next section here in Hebrews 12, God goes from the unique re relationship, divine father, to the spiritual son, which is illustrated now by a common relationship between a human father and their children, picking up with verse nine. Moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us. We respected them for it, 
how much more should be, we should be subject to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us, that is human fathers, for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order, order that we may share in his holiness. Now there's a list of contrasts here. When we go from the unique relationship to the common relationship, a list of contrasts, let me mention them just briefly. Uh, you've got the father of human fathers, which literally in the Greek is the fathers of the flesh contrasted with the father of spirits. The fathers of the flesh are human fathers, biological fathers. The father of spirits is the creator of everyone. And the argument is from the lesser to the greater. If we have human fathers in this common relationship who discipline us, and most do, good fathers do, how much more then will our heavenly father discipline us? The fathers discipline us because we're true children as opposed to illegitimate children. You don't discipline the neighbor kids. Oh, I suppose in some villages it happens, but it's not the best. You discipline your own. So contrast between true and illegitimate. Then you've got the contrast of what seemed good to them and God disciplining us for our good. Human fathers, many of them do their best, but every earthly father is flawed. And every one of us has, has have paused at a time later in our life to say, I disciplined with a capricious spirit. I wasn't consistent. I was ill-informed and meted out discipline. I was ill-tempered and meted out discipline. We look back and see what we should have done and weep over what we have done. Even a father who's trying to do his best does not do it perfectly, but the heavenly father, his discipline is good and perfect. And the point the writer of Hebrews is simply trying to say is this, you've got to die to yourself and live unto the heavenly father. Christ needs to be your Lord. Take up your cross and follow him and Jesus has no velvet crosses. And this is temporary from human fathers. They only discipline us for a while. But our eternal father disciplines us for the life that now is and the life that is to come. And his purpose is clear, that we might share in his holiness. So the hardships of life are aimed to make us holy. And if you jump down to verse 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Suffering is sanctified by the perspective that I am in, un this, I'm in this unique relationship with the Father who loves me and gives me what is good to make me like his son. Have you, not for, have you forgotten Romans chapter 
8 and verse 29, the ones he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, God was so pleased with his son, he wants to populate eternity with people just like him. And God is determined, when you give your heart and soul to him, God is determined to make you like Jesus. And we all say amen until we see the plan. What's the plan? Hebrews 12. But God's committed to that plan. He's predestined you to be like Jesus. And it won't happen perfectly this side of glory. It will after. When we see him, we'll be like him. For we will see him as he is. But sanctification is growth in grace to become more like Christ. And God is giving us these problems to challenge our life and make us like his son. Look at verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. The word train is where we get the English word gym, gymnasium. It's the idea of an athlete going into training. He talked about a race earlier in the chapter from the Olympics and now talks about more like a wrestler or a fighter who's training in the gym. Pain and gain. The trial is painful, but the gain is, gain is remarkable. It's called a harvest of righteousness and peace, or more literally, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Those who live uprightly in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit have a peace that the Spirit produces, even in the midst of difficulty. The devil wants to destroy us in our trials. God wants to perfect us. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We're trained by the trials and we reap the fruit of it. Isaiah 32, the fruit of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. Fruit for your trials. A little girl was giving, given a seed at school. I think she was in California and the seed was actually a tree that would become an orange tree. She was all excited. Went home to her mom and talked about the, tea, uh, the, the seed that was going to become a tree and her mom said, let's plant it. So they did. And they planted it in the dirt just before dinner. And then after dinner, she watered the seed. And then in the morning, she got up. Her mom found her staring at the seed. And she said, what are you doing? She said, well, I want to have orange juice for breakfast. <laughs> Takes a little while to grow a tree that grows the fruit that makes the Jews. And yet we stare every day at what we've gone through thinking, Lord, how come there's no juice? Harvest is coming. 
the harvest is coming. Samuel Rutherford, a great old Puritan who wrote deep things about his walk with God in the midst of suffering, said this. The secret of the saints is this. When we are put in the cellar of affliction, we must look for the Lord's choicest wine. Now, I don't know how that illustration goes with Baptists. But the whole point is, in the midst of adversity, there's beauty. And one more from Samuel Rutherford. Why should I tremble at the plow of my Lord that makes deep furrows on my soul when I know he's the loving farmer and has planned a wonderful crop, a harvest of righteousness and peace? Remember this. God is your father. You are his child. And he loves you more. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. And he loves you so much, he wants to make you just like you. God, give us wisdom, as the book of Proverbs says, and understanding. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the hammer and the file and the furnace. For the hammer that molds us and the file that sharpens us. And the furnace that purifies us so that we shall come forth as gold. In Jesus' name, amen.